0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. I've been a pastor for a minute now, and here's the problem when when you preach on money. I've done it a bunch of times, a bunch of different settings, is most of the time, no matter what I say, no matter how compelling, no matter how good the analogy, no matter how good the gospel turn of phrase, people go, oh my gosh, that is so cute. Because their defenses are up so high. If you want to get in an argument or make someone mad, start talking about money, specifically theirs. That is a great way to make sure that the conversation isn't going to go all that well. And so what I want to do before we dive directly in the text is I want to help you lower some defenses. Because the defenses usually are half-truths. Maybe things that have been true in your life. Maybe things that have been true in the church. Maybe things that you've seen be true but I want to only give you a chance to lower them with some actual truth, all right? And here are the three most predominant half-truths or just lies or things that may have been true but aren't today. And the first one goes like this, the defense. Man, we're preaching at money at church. The church must need money. There's another motive here. Well, actually, to disarm you, citizens is doing great. We just had a member meeting about it. We're doing great spiritually, which is the more important part of it. But financially, as a sustainable thing, things are really well. And we don't preach on money when finances are bad to guilt the church and immediately trying to fix the problem. Rather, we preach on money just as often as the Bible teaches on money. I don't want to teach on it more, and I don't want to teach on it less. God has entrusted me to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. That's what Scripture tells the preacher to do. And that's what expository preaching is. I'm exposing you to the text of the Bible. I'm bringing the truth of the Bible to you. Sermons aren't TED Talks. I'm not here to impress you. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to give you God's word, to feed your soul. And that includes money among every other thing you could possibly imagine. The second half truth is this. Preaching on money in the church today. Man, that church or that pastor, all he cares about is money. All he cares about is money. And here's the truth. You may have been in a church like that. They come in all shapes and sizes. But here, I don't set my pay. Your giving today has no impact on my pay or salary. Zero. My pay is set by our elders. I think they do a great job, part of a much larger budget. And so the idea that I'm preaching for me or for my things, it's unattached from that. And just to get 100% real with you, and I think the elders do a great job, by the way, I could make the same salary in a secular job tomorrow. Maybe more. So the idea that the church is a money or this is like a family business or Justin owns it, not true, not true, and not true. That's not how it works. It may work like that in some other church. But I'm in the wrong church and the wrong movement if that is my big goal. That is simply not what we're doing. My wife has a great job. I would be so sad if citizens crumbled. Why? Spiritually, because I feel like God called me to plant the church, and relationally, because I love y'all. But financially, that wouldn't be my worry. Nothing would probably change for the Carls at all. So if the motive you think in your defense is like, man, all they do is care about money," I just want to say that's just not true. First two were mostly about the pastor. This last one might give you a deeper pause because this defense is actually about you and I and everybody. Money doesn't really have an effect on me. Well, other than I never seem to have enough. Everyone else, everyone thinks someone else is rich. Everyone else thinks someone else has a problem with money. And here's the truth. We live in the wealthiest large nation on earth. Our cumulative wealth is larger than any other nation, and it's not by chance. It's a combination of both ambition and greed that has caused great prosperity and great suffering, both in the past in our country's history and in the present and in our future. They are intertwined. Yet, as currently as a survey this summer, seven out of ten Americans, adults, say they worry about money in what they would describe as very stress about money on a daily basis. Wealthiest nation on earth, buried in stress for the majority of Americans over money specifically. No one is free from the grip of greed. No one is free from its temptations to see money as more than just a tool. And we preach on money because Jesus is quite clear on Matthew 6, in Matthew 6, that we must pick between money and Jesus. Look what it says right here. These are the words of our Lord. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one, and despise the other, you cannot serve God in money. Don't take my word from it. You are being affected by your relationship with money. Money's neutral. It is. Money's not evil. The love of money's evil. Money's neutral, but your heart just isn't. Your heart is not neutral on this, and Jesus knows you. He made you, and he says, if money's on the throne of your life, I sure can't be. If it's already sitting on the throne, I can only be a pawn in your game. I have to be the king to put money in its right place in your life. And so the question is this. Will you lay down your defenses today and next week? We'll be in it for two weeks. Will you let God's word actually do its work, not so that citizens giving jumps, but that your heart would find its treasure in Jesus and not Alexis? Sorry if you have Alexis today. Substitute an Audi for you. (laughs) Don't shake off God's words today. Let them sink in and let Jesus be the king of your heart. So there's a man shouting again in this passage. It's kind of a theme in Luke that people are just yelling stuff at Jesus. And kind Jesus takes the time to kind of turn and graciously speak to person after person. And verse 13 goes like this. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, kind of turning to the disciples, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The shouting man wants Jesus to be a magician. I have a problem with money. I have a problem with my brother. It's an inheritance thing, Jesus. Could you just fix it? He doesn't see Jesus as the Messiah. He sees him as a magician But the shouting man ventures a little closer to the truth than he probably knows. Jesus is God. Jesus is the ultimate judge and will judge one day. But Jesus' mission for now isn't to make our frustrations with our brother disappear. Jesus is here for our hearts, specifically to redeem them. And one day he will pass judgment on them. But ultimately, the shouting man doesn't need a settlement with his brother. He, like all of us, we actually need a settlement with God. That because of sin, we are in conflict with God. There is a much greater dispute that should be on this man's mind and on all minds. And Jesus turns from him to them, probably right here to the disciples, to kind of explain what's going on. And he says, the real issue going on here isn't some injustice between him and his brother. It isn't that the man is frustrated. It isn't whatever the cause is. He's saying the real issue is coveting. And coveting may be really unfamiliar to you. It is the last of the Ten Commandments. It's number 10. And in Exodus 20, we're commanded this. Remember, commandments are to keep us in relationship with God. These are the ways to stay free of sin and with our Lord, following his rules. Look what Exodus 20 says about coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet his male or female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor." Coveting is whenever we love possessions more than God, particularly someone else's possessions. Loving possessions like that fails to love God, the giver of all things, but also fails to love the neighbor. And sin, like coveting, makes us crazy. When you enter the world of sin, it's like a bull when the eyes turn red and everything needs to be attacked and coveting has robbed this man of all sense. He is literally shouting in the street, putting his family drama, his family gossip on front street, saying, hey, my brother, yeah, he's a scoundrel. I need, to, I need to just ask anyone. He doesn't even know Jesus to step in. No matter what the issue may be, trying to get a religious figure to come intervene and swing his authority around like a club to hit your brother on the head and take the inheritance It doesn't even make sense. It's a strange thing to do. It's an inappropriate thing to do. Coveting makes us lose sense, but coveting also robs us of love. To have an inheritance dispute means there's been a death. So why, if it's a fresh death, why isn't he at the funeral? Why isn't he mourning? It's probably his mother or father. If time has passed, why isn't he discussing this with his brother? Why isn't he taking it to the court system? As Jesus suggests that they have court systems. There's a way, if there's a true injustice to work through these very issues. And this is how we see that Jesus, like many of his stories, he reads the heart. And he says there's more going on and coveting is not the, the problem, not the brother of the shouting man. One pastor puts it this way, how coveting, coveting twists us up inside. Covetousness. Wants what the other guy has. Envy is angry that the other guy has it. Covetousness is oriented towards your neighbor's possessions. And envy towards the man himself. They're the evil twins of each other. Covetous wants the other person's stuff. But envy wants their life. I want your identity. I don't want your stuff. I want to be you, and that's what envy is. You want to be her, not just her job, not just her smarts, not just her style, looks, or relationships. You want to be her. Sense and love fly away, including towards the God who made you and her, not to mention all things. And so Jesus tells a story. He says this is about coveting, and he tells a story, and it's a special story, because it's just like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Anyone remember that? I felt like somehow I watched it over and over growing up. It's left quite an impression. I think there's an animated version, there's a live action, there's a lot. And what happens in A Christmas Carol, there's a miserly boss named Scrooge who doesn't care about anyone, and he's miserable. And he goes to bed that night, and he gets visited by three ghosts. There's a ghost of his past to understand his boyhood a little bit. There's a ghost of the present to see the realities of what's actually happening in his shop, and his community. But the last ghost is a ghost of Christmas future, which shows him his death and how it all plays out. Jesus is telling a parable, a special story about the ghost of future death for this man. What if I say yes and give you the inheritance? What if you get to be the rich guy? What if it all works out the way your covetous heart wants it to? What then? So the story goes, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, The inheritance worked out. You didn't get half, you got it all. And you know what? The land went crazy. It produced more than it even should. You're richer than you could have ever even coveted. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. And I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. We see the land's been producing for years, that he has goods. He has toys he has to store away, barn after barn, bigger and bigger, year by year. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus says the same brother who lost his head with sense and love and believes in the abundance of his possessions is where life is. If that brother gets his way, he will just get busy building bigger barns for all of his grains and good. Coveting never ends. It only grows. Even if it gets satisfied. It will just cry for more and suck every piece of life out of your soul. Proverbs 27 20 says this like hell itself, the eyes of men are never satisfied. Notice it says his goods. He is packing away a stuff, packing away ancient wealth, and the cost of coveting always rises, even as earthly treasures are never enough, it's never going to work to continue to follow the thread of coveting. You don't meet rich people who are real satisfied. They just find new rich people to covet. You don't find the poor that are very satisfied. They find other poor, people slightly above them, to covet. No one is immune from these things. And even when we receive what we want, it won't be enough. If you get his money or her job or get the house like your best friend's house or the spouse like your best friend's spouse, coveting is direct. It's literally to want another's, but coveting is also comparison to a peer. It's keeping up with another. It's lusting after luxury of those more wealthy than you. And even coveting the experiences of others. FOMO, fear of missing out, is just low grade coveting. It sounds noble, like I care about experiences, not things, but what is it really? FOMOs, I wish I was there like them. I wish God had provided differently for me. This makes Instagram a coveting machine. Influencers and advertising don't work apart from coveting. There's a moment that you want this thing and you want and see them enjoy it and you wish it was you. This man, you're no longer grateful for your life and your experiences, but your fear of missing out on what? Their life. This man is rich, but he's a fool. He's rich, which our culture values. But Jesus says he's a fool. Because he believes life is about who has the most stuff or the best experiences. Because his stuff, he wants the experience. Relax, be merry, eat and drink. Listen how crazy this man sounds. He even thinks he can speak to his own soul and tell it to be happy as if he is God. Verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul. What? Soul. You have ample goods. Laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's a loaded phrase in Scripture. In Isaiah 22, it's Ecclesiastes. Paul will use the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, and it means as it sounds. To eat, drink, be merry, relax means to live the good life in this world as if there's only this world to live for. There's nothing wrong with the celebration if the celebration is fitting. But to celebrate in a world that all there is to live for is celebration is its own empty tragedy. And this line and this thinking in verse 19 should make us pretty uncomfortable. Why? Because it treads awfully close to the American dream we celebrate. Everyone has a different version of the American dream or American disappointment. But it sounds something like this. If you work hard, you do what's right generally in your own eyes, you'll have enough success that you can be happy. And happy is not defined as relationship with God or experiencing the love of God. Happiness is defined of one day I won't have to do anything, I won't have any responsibilities, and I won't have any needs. And I would say that is the lie of leisure. That if I just get to a place where I have few enough responsibilities, I don't have any needs, I don't have to think about that, and don't really do any work, then I'll be happy. Rest in peace, my friend Jimmy Buffett. But that's the Parrothead philosophy, that if I can just get enough wealth to not care about anything, then I'll be happy. And sadly, isn't that the pitch of most financial planning? Isn't even that the pitch of an awful lot of Christian budgeting is wrapped in things that ultimately promise, please, Jesus, and a little bit of the live leisure. Success isn't to end up devoid of work, devoid of responsibility, and having no needs. Because Jesus told us in Luke 6 that it's the needy, the poor, and the hungry in Christ who are blessed. There is an entirely different vision of what blessed or happiness looks like. And it doesn't have anything to do with money. It's a fair question to ask your soul. How much of your life is built around getting from vacation A to vacation B? And if you have enough money or time to get to C in the same year. How much of your life is built on the hopes of retirement? That one day you can have that leisure. How much of it is built around just chasing leisure in your day-to-day life? Rest is good. But biblical rest is to rest in God's love and rest your body in his providence. But trusting to relax, eat, drink, and marry to fix our soul soul is foolishness. There's no vacation that's going to fix what's going on in here. That's why we keep trying to upgrade them year after year in our life. Do most Americans not save enough? Yes. Is saving and planning for the future good and biblical? Absolutely. We can line the Proverbs up and go for it. However, coveting can make us miss God both ways. Coveting makes us irresponsible spending when we should be saving. Coveting, seeing other people's stuff, makes us spend when we should save. 63% of Americans in 2023 live paycheck to paycheck. That they have a $500 unexpected expense would put them into a bad debt hole. Coveting does make irresponsibility. That's not everyone. Some people are in poverty and it's a trap. But a lot of it's preventable. And coveting can make us so responsible in the world's eyes that we're actually irresponsible before God that we wind up ridiculous trying to buy heaven on earth for our soul, that one day we have enough money to say the barns are big enough, let's just relax. That man, he's building barns hoping for heaven. It's a hope in all of our hearts. It's just been twisted for sin. The lie of leisure has a ring of truth. It's just not for this world. It's for the next. We will never relax enough to build our own mini heaven, to then be happy. So Jesus gives a story about the shouting man's future, that without curing his coveting, no amount of money will ever be enough. He'll just build bigger barns. And I know that's tough to hear, because we live in a nation full of big barns. We just do. We live in the wealthiest nation on earth, the wealthiest large nation per capita on earth, and we just live in a nation where the barns are everywhere, so we can find ourselves scheming with everyone else to say, Well, I just want like a medium sized barn. Just a medium, give me like a middle class barn. And it's easy to do. And finally, verse 20, God speaks in the story it says, But God said to him, Fool, This night, your soul is required of you. It doesn't matter what you say to your soul. I'm the judge. I'm the one who requires things. I'm your only hope, but I'm the judge. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It's an often refrain in the Old Testament. You're saving to what end? You're amounting a a, a mountain of things to what end? For it all to blow away with your life. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus is telling this man, telling the disciples, telling the crowds, telling us that he is the only cure for a coveting heart. Only in being rich towards God, finding our treasure in God, can cure a coveting heart. The rich man wants security from his wealth, and in the end, he's not secure. The rich man wants to enjoy his wealth, and in the end, he does not. The rich man wants to be happy, and in the end, he wasn't happy for long, or maybe not at all. All of his efforts, all of his trust placed on his riches did not turn out. Why? Because life is sweet, is tragic, it's uncertain, and it's awfully short. And that's the truth. None of us know when we'll pass. And so life in that way is precious and limited. But our things are ultimately not that precious. No thing you own could be as precious as a human life. Coveting seduces us with promises it can't keep. If only I had this, I'd be happy, only to find out it won't make you happy. You'll just covet another thing. Our soul was meant to be satisfied in Jesus Christ alone. And if you hold too closely to the things in this life, you can't live for the next life. You can't live for the life in the future if you're gripping everything so tightly in the present. It's okay to have things. It's okay to have some nice things. But it's not okay to grip them when you're supposed to be holding on to Christ. Amen? Coveting makes us lose track both of God's providence and our future. The rich man loses all sight of God and eternal future. He wants to rest for his soul. And he looks for it everywhere but God. But he also loses sight of reality. Does he really own the land? Or does God ultimately own all lands? Does he really own all these profits and crops? Or does everything that grows under heaven ultimately the Lord? As says, the Lord says, I own a cattle on a thousand hills. Does he really know what's best for his soul? Because that's the man's hubris. He's concerned about his soul. He thinks he has the fix. Or does God have the only salvation for our souls? Be rich towards God, and your heart will let go of what it covets. Be rich towards God, and your heart will drop what it's coveting. You can't fly away to the Lord and hold on to the things of earth. Your heart cannot be free if you tether it to this world. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. It's God or money. It's me or it. You can't do them both. So how do we be rich towards God in a way that eliminates coveting? I'm just going to give you two steps. One is do not trust in riches. It is a call of the Bible. Do not trust in riches. They're easy to trust in for security or joy or, or happiness or comfort or pleasure or whatever money can buy. Don't trust in riches, but rather give thanks for what you have. Acknowledge who God is. Don't trust in the riches. Give thanks to God and don't covet their riches. Keep your eyes on your paper, knowing that everything on the paper comes from above. That's step one. As long as you're looking at them, you ain't looking at God. You can't covet and give thanks at the same time. Think about that. As long as you're coveting someone's house or spouse or wealth or looks or job or whatever, you're not giving thanks for your life. And it's probably actually embittering you toward your house and your spouse and your kids and your budget and whatever else. By looking away. From God, by choosing not to give thanks, you're actually rotting your experience of everything in your life. It's setting your life on fire as you gaze into the flames of someone else's life. The second thing is this, and we're going to learn a lot more about it next week, but Jesus explicitly tells us in this next passage, seek God's kingdom with your life, including your riches. Don't trust in riches. Instead, seek God's kingdom with your riches in your life. Because remember, money isn't evil. Avoiding money isn't going to solve the problem. Some think like, oh, if I just, you know, don't care about money at all and and don't worry about it, you know, then I'll be free from it. No, no. Money is a part of life. Money is a tool. And here's the truth that we need to take down deep in our heart. Money will do whatever you command it to do. That's like a big ownership moment. Money doesn't boss you around. You can command money what to do. There's only three things it can do. You can spend it. You can save it. You can give it. And there's no other buckets. Really think about it. Anything else? like Oh, it's investing? No, that's, that's savings. You know, that's spending. It, everything you can do with money boils down to three choices with every diamond dollar in your life spend it save it or give it and when you start to budget and align your spending your saving and your giving according to god's priorities of his kingdom a miracle happens a miracle happens where money is no longer in charge of your heart but god suddenly it becomes like a rake that you pick up the leaves with in the yard instead of the sun the moon the stars and everything in your life and money is finally in its proper place as a tool. And how this miracle happens is you start to treasure Christ and suddenly you stop treasuring the world. You stop treasuring money. And this is what he says explicitly. Luke 12:34 it says, "For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Awesome. If you treasure Christ first, if you trust your riches to Jesus and His work, your heart will stay with Jesus. If you trust your life to your treasure, you're going to get busy building barns because it never quite works. But maybe if I had a bigger barn, you never quite get the rest of one. So maybe it's the bigger vacation. Maybe it's the greater retirement. It's an endless cycle of pursuing and who knows when life will be cut short. It's a fool's game. It's like entering a casino. You know you're going to lose the money in the end. You know you're going to lose your soul in the end. And I'm saying, walk out of this casino. This world is like a casino where there are no clocks, and they feed you things to make you happy, and, and, and alcohol, and, and and cigarettes, and all, all the lights and sound are meant to keep you in the casino. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to lose the casino. You're going to have to leave. But living in America is like living in the casino of money. It's a system made to make you think this is all there is, so just keep throwing the dice. Maybe you'll get the big barn. Christ is the only path to contentment, to be satisfied somewhere else, and the only treasure that truly satisfies. When money is our Messiah, we're rich to ourselves and we end up broke with God. When Jesus is our Messiah, we end up rich towards God and we break free from a worldly life. Why does Jesus share all this? Because consider the irony about the shouting man. Consider the irony here. He's angry with his brother. He wants the inheritance. Ultimately, we learn he's looking for a great treasure. See the irony of who's standing before him? The book of Hebrews calls Jesus our eldest brother. This man's, the brother he needs, is actually standing right there. He just happens to be shouting at him. The brother who has the inheritance he actually needs and wants to give it to him is Jesus standing right in front of him. The man that has the treasure that's actually going to settle down, satisfy, relax, eat, drink, be merry, and give all things to his soul is right in front of him. It's not that he needs to solve something with a brother way out there. He needs the settlement that only God can give in Christ right here. His future leads nowhere with coveting, but his future could be glorious with Christ. And the same opportunity is here for you. Nothing has changed. Jesus stands with his arms wide to be your treasure, to be your inheritance, to be the brother that you need. Life isn't about what you have. Life isn't about the stuff you love. Life isn't even about your most Instagrammable experiences. Life is about a God who loves you in Christ. And the right way to love everyone and everything around you is found by loving God first. To love God first will teach you how to do all the other things, because they do matter. But they need to matter rightly under God, not over Him. Let God's word teach you how to love everything else well. Jesus is our judge, but Jesus is also our savior. He's our true brother who shares the inheritance of heaven at great personal cost. Not a cost to us, but a cost to him on the cross. Jesus pays for all of our coveting on the cross. I beg you to confess your coveting to the Lord today, just to be honest about whatever it is, even if it's silly even if it's serious, to confess it and say that this is things I need forgiveness for. And notice that Jesus will give you the freedom to end your coveting by treasuring him. You will treasure God as you learn his forgiveness, just like you learn in new member discipleship. This is a moment for you to see a Christ who pays for my coveting and actually acknowledge my coveting. And suddenly the cross and Jesus gets bigger in your life, and that's how you treasure him that's starting to see a Jesus who's big and beautiful enough like a moth to a flame to pull us out of the spiral of coveting and towards Christ himself. The coveting in this world ends when we find Christ as a greater value to treasure instead. Coveting sure does make us crazy, but Christ is our true treasure and our only cure.